Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And this morning we're continuing on our Advent series. We're, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 79 this morning. It's printed for you in the ESV translation on page 10 and 11. And if you're welcome to follow in your own Bibles or your own apps there on your phone. But I did change the order of the verses a little bit to reflect a chronological order. So you'll want to follow along if you do that. Um, before we go to God's Word, let's go together again in prayer. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in speech that we might know you. We might know your truth. We might know your gospel. We might taste and see that you are good through your word. So, Father, we ask that as we come before your word this morning, that by your spirit you would open this text up to us. You would again give us truth for our growth and our transformation. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to start out by doing something a little different. I'm going to say a few words, and as I say these words, I want you to not do that adult thing you do where you suppress the emotions and you like kind of just be this mature person. Okay, I'm asking you to be immature, okay? Boys and girls, you can help us out here. Okay, no one has to shout out anything. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just asking you to let the emotion of these words wash over you. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Omicron, inflation, debt, bully, finals, conflict, funeral. I'm going to guess that's not a list that causes rejoicing. We live in a world that needs hope. We live in a time that needs hope. And Advent, the remembering of the coming of Jesus as a baby and the looking forward to him coming again as the conquering king, Advent is about hope. Hope in the power of the gospel to actually change the world. I know many of my conversations with you, many of you express just disdain at the status of our country. You express fear is what the world is going to look like for your children and your grandchildren. I get that. No matter what you may think of the status of your country or our culture, ancient Rome was far, far worse by almost all measurable standards, morally, politically, spiritually. And yet through 12 ordinary guys, a handful of women, preaching the miracle of a baby and the foolishness of a cross... The culture was reborn as the basis for Western culture. And this Christmas season, the question I want us to always be asking in the background of everything we do over the next several weeks is this. Do we not only have hope in the power of God unto salvation, but do we have hope that God can actually make things better? Do you have that hope? Because that's where our text is today. God's silence at this point in Luke has lasted for 400 years. There had been tons of political turmoil and no prophets at the beginning of that 400-year period at the end of the book of Malachi. Israel is an independent nation, and at the end of this, they are under Roman rule. If you remember back from your history classes long ago, remember that guy called Alexander the Great? Everything he did happened during these 400 years. All this political upheaval, the world literally turned upside down, and yet God was silent. 
And it's during this silence that Zechariah, just a regular Levitical priest doing his scheduled duties in the temple, goes to do his work and an angel shows up and says, your prayers will be answered. You and your wife will have a child. And they're older, so he doubts and he questions. And in his questioning, the angel then strikes him mute because of his questions. And that's where our text picks up now. So if you would, you please follow along, starting in Luke chapter 1, verse 57. This is God's Word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. We're going to skip down to verse 67 now. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And now verse 65, which is their reaction. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now this is God's word. So our theme from this text for today is this. Hope comes when God fulfills His promises. Hope comes when God fulfills His promises. We're going to see that first thing here is God's hope is in a promise. So the story opens with an ordinary circumcision. The friends and family are gathered as this baby joins the religious community officially. He gets the covenant sign put on him. Everybody knows to take it easy because Zechariah has his issues. Work stress has made him silent for nine months, and so they want to put too much stress on him. So per the angel, Elizabeth tries to name the child, but she is told to name him. Name him John. And all the friends and family are like, hold up there, sister. That's not how we do it around here. Around here, firstborn son is Junior. And as any couple can tell you, that when friends and family have really strong opinions about what you're going to name your child, that is just super, right? And so Elizabeth, you know, yeah, she reacts that same way too. She won't budge. And so they go after old mute Zechariah. 
And I love how you can see how human this is written. It's not written as if it's fiction, because in real life, if you've ever been around someone who can't talk, you know you've been tempted to do this. And maybe, you know, you're kind of slow-witted like I am and have actually fallen into actually doing it. But notice, they don't just think he can't talk. They think he's deaf. And so they start playing charades. He's not deaf. And you know you would do that too. It's written like it actually happened, you know. So anyway, he asked for a, 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 a writing tablet. It'd be like a piece of wax on a board with a scratcher thing into it. And he scratches in. In Greek, it's actually reversed for emphasis. John is his name. And suddenly he can talk. See, he gets his voice back, not at the birth of John, but he gets his voice back at the naming of John. Once Zechariah shows he believes God's promise, proven by his obedience, he then gets his voice back. And the first thing he says is not to his wife. She does not get to hear him say how beautiful she was when he was, she was pregnant. She never heard him laugh at her tumbling belly. She never got to hear him talk to her belly. Um, young dads-to-be or dads-yet-to-be, you need to remember those things. Those are important. Your wife's going to say yes to those things, just so you know. But she doesn't get to hear any of that. John's, or excuse me, Zechariah's first words are inspired praise for God's hope-filled promise. And it's at this point he utters verses 68 through 79. We need to understand who he was so this text really get into your heart. Here's what I mean. For some of you, this, this is a tough time of year. Life's not going your way. It's not working out like you planned. You're not achieving what our culture says is the dream. Maybe your hopes aren't happening. Maybe like our family, there's going to be a significant absence this Christmas that there's never been before. And a lot of times this Christmas stuff just makes you feel worse. This passage is for you. I want you to look at Zechariah and Elizabeth. I want to zoom in on verse 58 to kind of get into what their world looked like. Notice that little phrase there in verse 58. It says, he had shown great mercy to her. In that culture, her only real value was in bearing children. This is an ancient Near Eastern culture where, call, where, where the word patriarchy is not just some subjective slam. It's actually objective and measurable. Her value as a woman, she existed to have children, especially sons. She would have felt worthless. She would have felt a failure, a letdown to her husband, a mistake, her whole adult life, and her inability to have children. And Zechariah, as any man would at that time, he did not dream of a white picket fence and a house in the country with land to shoot at things. No, he dreamed of a big family full of sons. That's what men wanted. You been there? Life full of disappointment? It's not working out? We have five children now, but as I've said before, we were told by several doctors the first years of our marriage we would never have children. And it just formed like the background static of our life. No matter what it was, that static would immediately just take away joy, just take away laughter. That was Zechariah and Elizabeth's life too. And that's why he just could not believe the angel. It was just too good to be true. After all this time, you're really going to do this? And so he asked for a sign and the angel strikes him mute for doing so. But wasn't his doubt reasonable? I mean, is God so much of a taskmaster that he strikes an old man 
mute for doubting that he and his wife could conceive a child? They see, God struck Zechariah for his good, not for punishment. He struck Zechariah to teach him during the pregnancy. Zechariah, because he couldn't talk, he had lots and lots of time to pray and to let go of his doubt. This is something God often does. He uses hard experiences of suffering to teach us to trust Him. See, what happens is very often we begin to equate God's love with our success. We begin to equate God's blessing with our lack of struggle. So when things are going well, God must be really happy with me. And so when things aren't going well, well, logically, we start to think God maybe is not so happy with us. Or maybe for some of you, the America you grew up with is kind of hard to find. Or maybe the economy is struggling and you're fearful. Elections give questionable leaders. And when those things happen, we tend to think maybe God isn't as pleased with us as he used to be. Sometimes God comes and he takes those things away so that we can focus back on him instead of what he can give us. Because you realize this, God's not Pavlov. Remember Pavlov? From school, even if kids, remember Pavlov, right? Scientist comes, oversimplification, it's much, actually much more complicated than this, but basically, every time he feeds the dogs, he rings the bell, right? And then one day he shows up and he rings the bell without food. Anybody remember what happens, boys and girls? Anybody know what happens? The dogs start salivating like crazy because they associate the bell with food. And it created this whole branch of psychology called behaviorism. Well, and it's all about behavior modification, how you can make people jump through hoops. And God is not interested in that. He does not want behavior modification. God wants to change our hearts. And so what he does is he shows great mercy to us. Like it says in verse 74, he shows great mercy to us that we might serve him, not out of fear, Not in an attempt to manipulate him, but out of appreciation for God's grace and mercy, we serve him. See, Zechariah understands that now. After a life of disappointment, after nine months of silence, God has worked for his good. So Zechariah opens up his mouth and he praises God for God's great plan of grace and salvation. See, that's why there's hope. Because God has a plan. Our sin, our hopelessness, our tragedies, our disappointments are not a surprise to Him. No, He already had a plan then and He has a plan now for how to free us. Look with me at verse 68. His plan is summed up right here in verse 68. What has God done? He has visited and redeemed His people. We could alternately check it, uh, translate that. He checked on and then rescued His people. Parents, you got a, a child who's still in a crib. You open that door at night and you check in on them. You do it almost every night, right? And one night you check in on them and the stupid cat's sitting on your kid's chest. And you're like, oh. So you go in there and you get the cat out of there, right? You have checked in on and rescued your child. That's the, that's the nature of this text. God looked in on and he's like, well, that shouldn't be that way. Let's fix that. And Zechariah says this, that he has redeemed his people. Did you catch this? Zechariah's not looking at Jesus hanging on the cross. He's not even looking at baby Jesus. He's holding John the Baptist in his arms and he says, redemption's done. What's that all about? Well, the Old Testament promised a Messiah, a rescuer. And it also promised that a person would come to prepare the way for this rescuer. 
And Zechariah knows that this other person, this preparation person, is his son, John. And God's promises are so sure that since the advance team has arrived, Zechariah knows the main event is going to happen. God will rescue. God will bring freedom. You know, the word redeemed, we throw that around in church world all the time, but the word redeemed is actually from the world of economics. And it's about freedom. It's about a price is paid to get something out of bondage, to transfer ownership of something, to set it free from this, to give it to that. And so he says, God has come to set us free, to redeem us. Christmas is the Christian's Independence Day. We should sing a song like, let freedom ring for Advent, because that's our Independence Day. I love how an ancient scholar, some of you who are high school English nerds, you might remember this guy from your literature classes. Remember the venerable Bede? Remember that? There's even a couple songs we sing by him. He was a scholar. He was a British historian, late 700s. He said this. He says that he redeemed his people by giving us freedom at the price of his own blood. We who had been sold into the slavery of sin. That's what redemption is. We've been sold into slavery, so he pays the price to get us out of that. You know, I love quoting these old guys, by the way, because it reminds me, and I hope it reminds you too, that Christianity is an ancient ancient faith, but it can still meet your modern needs. The gospel may be new to you, but it is not new. It's old and it's solid. And this new old promise is right here that God's people would be set free by God himself showing power and mercy to pay the price of redemption himself. It's a huge promise. Look at me at verse 71. What is this promise? He says this, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. He quotes here actually Psalm 106.10, which is a song about God delivering his people in the Exodus, which is tremendous if you think about it for a second. For a Jewish man, a priest nonetheless, to dare indicate that the birth of a child is anywhere close as big of a deal as the Exodus? This is unheard of. And he said this in front of his friends and family. He probably had that one hardcore uncle who like, wanted to stone him right there on the spot. Because right? we all got that uncle in our family, right? You may want to admit that. Okay, well, if you can't think of who it is, it might be you, just saying. <laughs> so what Zechariah is doing here, he said, this is a big deal. And you want to look at it and go, is it really? I mean, didn't you see Prince of Egypt and like the whale through when he split? The, he didn't see that? Or an older generation, Charlton Heston splitting the Red Sea? Come on, that's a big deal. A baby? That's common. That's not a big deal. But Zechariah is looking to the incredible God behind this baby. A God who makes and fulfills his promises. And the birth of John means that that rescue is absolutely coming. And to make sure that we don't miss it, he makes it plain in verses 72 and 74. Let's look at that together. It says this, that to show the mercy promised to our fathers... And to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. There it is. That's what the rescuer is going to do in the birth of John is the promise of this. This is why we, a room full of primarily Gentile Christians, sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Because we are singing about ourselves being brought on an exodus, a rescue from the slavery of sin and fear through the death of Jesus on our behalf that set us free. 
the birth of John the Baptist, according to Zechariah, proves that will happen. Maybe things aren't so good in your life right now. Maybe they're not as good as they used to be. Maybe you long for the so-called good old days. Maybe this is not where you want your life to be this Advent season. But remember, it was, it was dark and silent in Israel at this point until Zechariah speaks a word of prophecy in public for the first time in 400 years. And it's a word of hope in a promised rescuer, even the Lord Jesus. And so too, in our challenging world, we can look to God's promise, God's hope in a promise. We can also look to God's hope in a person. Starting in verse 76, Zechariah speaks now to his son directly. He looks at his son and he basically proclaims, you are the promised messenger. You are the one who will prepare the way for the rescuer. And it makes me ask the question, why was preparation necessary? Why couldn't Jesus just come? Well, we know that the people back then were looking for political salvation. If they could just get the right leaders who would then make the economy better, then we would have more freedom. Perhaps that sounds a little familiar. But that was not the kind of salvation that God promised. So before the Savior even came, someone had to get the people ready for the right kind of freedom. So verse 77 tells us that God sent John to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. You see, people then and people now need to see it since our bondage. We need to see that we're not right. It's hard to rescue someone who doesn't know they're in danger. So John came, and he came, notice, he didn't go to the pagan nations all around who, who didn't know God's word. He came to the nation that had God's instructions already. And they still looked to salvation from other sources. And so too, we in church world, man, part of the hope of Advent is to remember that our salvation is not in politics or prosperity or an end to COVID, although we want all those things. We need to understand the depths of our sin before we can actually taste the forgiveness and rescue in Jesus. See, they didn't know what they actually needed. And so John came to help them see what they needed to be rescued from. In his mercy, God sent John to tell people what their real problem was. And so too, dear flock, you realize that we're usually wrong about what we need. We look to our circumstances, right? God, help me with my job, my money, my marriage. Then maybe we can be happy. Then maybe I can have peace. But John will remind us, no, you're a sinner in rebellion to God. And you need peace with God first, and then you can find happiness. Or maybe if you're a religious type person, you know better than to do that. But often what do we do? We say, well, if I can just start living right, if I can just clean up this area of my life, God will be happier with me and then he'll give me more toys. God will bless me. Clean up my room and make dad happy. But John comes to religious people and says, no, God doesn't want better behavior. God wants us to see our sin and then run to him for rescue. We need forgiveness first for real change to take place in our life. And if you want your life to be different, don't try harder to be good. Repent of your sin. Ask for God's grace. That's where hope is. See, the hope of forgiveness is right there for people like us 
Look with me in verse 78. It's right there because of the tender mercy of our God. We could even call it the extreme kindness. I like that translation of our God. Because he, he comes to sinners in darkness. He rescues them and he brings them peace. So that's Zechariah's prophetic birth sermon. And afterwards, back in 65 through 66, all the family and neighbors can tell the Spirit of the Lord has been there and they are afraid. It's been 400 years since there's been a prophet. They all hear, they all go tell their friends, and everyone around asks this really interesting question. They ask, what role will this kid play in all of this, is their question. And so to Christians here in the room, I would ask you, what role are we going to play in God's plan? We are, in a sense, John the Baptist for our culture. We can't save anyone, but we can certainly call folk to seek forgiveness in Jesus so he can save them. We can, especially during Christmas, we can point Jesus to people. We can point him out to people in the midst of all sorts of stuff. I mean, God has placed us right in the midst of all sorts of people this time of year who are trapped in darkness more people you know than you think you do. This is not a time of year that is rejoicing. It's hard. It's sad. And we can be in their lives and help point them to the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a privilege we have. Our dear flock, maybe you're sitting here going, I don't have that this year. I know Jesus, but I'm struggling with hope myself. Let this be your hope again as we look at Jesus. The power of the gospel to change sinners. Which means the gospel can change neighborhoods. Which means the gospel can change cities. Which means the gospel can change states. Which means the gospel can change a nation. Let that hope come to you again this Christmas. The gospel is the hope For salvation, it's also the hope for real change in our world. And let that hope flood your fearful heart. And for non-Christians here today, or maybe you're in conversation this time of year with with family members who don't know Jesus or neighbors, I want to go back to verse 75 and kind of camp out there for a second. God promises that his people can serve him fearlessly in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. But guess what? There is no one who's holy in and of themselves. The Bible actually says there is no one who is righteous. And so if you don't know Jesus, this verse here is actually a glimpse of the hope that is available for you. Because the only way that anybody ever serves a holy and pure God fearlessly is when he makes you holy and righteous himself. We can't change ourselves. And that's the gospel. Not do better, act better, be better, work harder, become holy, and then God will accept you. No. The gospel is that Jesus lived this holy life that God demands of you. And that he did die the death that your sin deserves. And his life and death together can make you righteous and holy because God gives it to you by grace. When you embrace Jesus as the resurrected Lord. God gives all that to you for free. There's nothing you can do to earn it. I just want to end by asking, do you sense your guilt Maybe it's not that defined. Maybe it's just that kind of amorphous darkness that tends to hide behind you. You kind of just feel scared for no reason sometimes. That's guilt before your creator. Do you feel your bondage? 
Do you sense that there's just something deeply wrong and you want to be right again? Then place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and you will be saved. Confess Him as the resurrected Lord who died for you. And you can have forgiveness, freedom, and hope. And don't wait. Do it today. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before Your Word, it's just so good. It's almost too good to be true that we, like Zechariah, want to question. Are you sure? But we're grateful that you don't strike us mute. Instead, you give us more grace and show us yet again the beauty of Jesus. Father, we pray that as Jesus Christ has been portrayed as crucified for sinners, that you would draw all people to him, even this moment. And that you would build your kingdom and cause people to confess faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, we pray for those of us who do know you, that you would help us to have our hope anchored firmly in you and not our circumstances, and that you would use us as vessels to take that hope to our community. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.